The three main political parties put the spotlight on education with major announcements at the start of the year. That attention will continue in March when education experts from around the world meet in Wellington for the International Summit on the Teaching Profession. But this Radio New Zealand Insight programme asks if too much is being asked of education when it comes to fixing social ills. Lovely. Like the head turning, but too much. These children at Shannon Primary School are learning to swim. The lessons are just one of the ways the school south of Palmerston North has been serving its community for the past 125 years. But how much can Shannon Primary School and other schools and early childhood centres really change their communities? I'm John Gerritsen, and in this insight I explore what we're expecting of our education system and what it can deliver. The three main political parties made announcements at the start of the year setting the policy scene for the general election. At the heart of their messages was education in particular reducing underachievement and by association many of the social ills that stem from poor education results. The Greens Materia Ture wants to do that through health and social care at poor schools. The whole point of this package is to address the inequality and poverty impacts. That means that kids are not ready to come to school and learn. So there's a lot of issues in education. We'll start with the kids who are in most need first and we'll work our way up from there. The leader of the Labour Party, David Cunliffe, had a focus on under five-year-olds. We all know that the first five years of a child's life are the most important. It affects how they learn, how they get on with people and how they are able to develop and seize later opportunities. And the National Party's leader, John Key, wants to create new roles for the best teachers and principals. Doing better at school has profound impacts on the lives of young New Zealanders economically, of course, but also in terms of their ability to participate in society and to contribute to their families and their communities. Talk like that has educators both excited and wary. The president of the Principals Federation, Philip Harding, does not take much comfort from what he's heard so far. I'm pleased to see education having a, a pivotal focus for, for the players. I'm not sure that they've completely got the point and the feedback that I've been having from colleagues over the last few weeks is that the out-of-school factors have got to be given a higher priority by all of our politicians uh, and that the, the issue of poverty lies at the heart of a lot of the things that are dragging down our performance. And the Chief Executive of the Early Childhood Council, Peter Reynolds, says it certainly seems that education will be one of the key planks in the lead-up to the election. We're already seeing a, a bit of a lolly scramble of ideas being put forward by various parties. So I think we've got to look very seriously at the, at the policies that are being put forward and make a decision on what's in the best interests of, of the children who are going to participate in the education system. At Massey University, an education professor, Howard Lee, says education has seldom been in the political spotlight in New Zealand. My take of this would be to look as an educational historian over the many years that we've had our education system formally in place since the late 1870s and say that I can think of very few occasions where education, with a capital E, has actually been foremost in any political party's election manifesto. I can think back to the 1890s with a Liberal government, Seddon and the reforms he made to post-primary schooling. 
I can think back to the first Labour government, 1935 to 49, with a whole range of curriculum and assessment reforms. Um, then we have, of course, the, the key government, 2008, which in its election manifesto had announced national standards with a capital N and a capital S. So really, we've got three, possibly four occasions in our educational history where education has been part a foremost part of uh, any political party's manifesto. Howard Lee says that's appalling. We spend a lot of money on education. Um, I look at the figures that we're spending for 2013-2014, and out of a, um, a total government or crown expenditure of some $72 billion, we're spending $12 billion on education. And about two-thirds of that goes for early childhood, goes for primary and for secondary. That's a large sum of money. And it seems to me that we should be asking searching questions about what education does for us, what it does for our children, what it does for our community and for our economy. So why all the interest now? Part of it is the controversy that's dogged education for the past few years, from the national standards in reading, writing and maths, through to the Novapay school payroll debacle, the reorganisation of schools in Christchurch and the abandoned attempt to increase class sizes in order to redirect money to improving the quality of teaching. Those issues have pushed education to the forefront of public debate. But another Massey University education professor, John O'Neill, says the scrutiny of education has been building for some time. If you look back at New Zealand education since the introduction of tomorrow's schools, from both sides of the political divide, there has been an increasing... Uh, demand that we are able to monitor the effectiveness of the system and that we have interventions that is, uh, are designed to make sure that teachers actually make a difference. The rhetoric is different between Labour and National or those on the right and those on the left but the underlying normality is now one that says we make a huge investment as a country in public education we're entitled to expect that that will deliver returns. And for those groups of students who don't traditionally succeed in the system, we have an obligation to put in place specific interventions. The chief researcher at the Council for Educational Research, Cathy Wiley, says there's no need to panic about the state of education. But she says there is a growing realisation the education system needs to change. We don't have a broken system in the sense that um, you know our schools are terrible places. It's not like that. It's really, I think, in the 21st century, you don't just react to something because you think it's broken. You react to something because you start to think about what's being asked of it. I mean, I think that what we're asking of teachers in schools now is probably the greatest we've ever asked in the history of New Zealand education. And the reason for that is because we really want to make sure that every child in this country benefits from their formal learning. But Massey University's Howard Lee can see another reason for the increased interest in education. He says political interest in education tends to peak during times of economic pressure, when governments see it as a way of increasing the nation's wealth. 
for many, many years when we set our education system up, our mass primary education system way back in the 1870s. It was set up with a little bit of that in mind. At the end of the day, people are going to leave school and go out to the world of work, so we wish to prepare people for that as, as best we can. But also there was something to be said for providing education as a, as a social good, as a public good. Increasingly what we see, and we've seen it really since the 1980s, particularly when the economy began to retract and retract significantly, and we saw this in the Depression in the 19. 20s, late 20s, early 1930s, and a little bit in the 1880s, hungry 80s depression, is that politicians become particularly keen on using education as a lever for economic um, outputs. Howard Lee says education has an economic effect, but he does not believe the system should be viewed as a means of simply producing people who are ready to take their place in the workforce. Nonetheless, people have tried to calculate the impact of education on the economy. Cathy Wiley showed me a government paper on the issue. This is from the Treasury. It's, it's called Education Key to Economic Growth and Equity. And it suggested that um, if uh, um, we were to raise our PISA results... Now, PISA is the OECD's international test of 15-year-olds, isn't it? Yes, yes, and it's just reading, writing and mathematics and science. Um, our analysis suggests that if overall student achievement was lifted among the top in the OECD, GDP would be 3 to 15% higher by 2070. So you're not getting quick returns for this investment in education? Well, uh, no. Cathy Wiley is cautious about such estimates, which she says are based on a small number of countries and a single measure of educational achievement. A lot of other things go into um, GDP. A lot of other policies, a lot of other things um, over which um, we have more or less control and education would be part of that um, and it would be interesting to see if somebody had done analysis of, of for example, if, if you were to change some other policies, what would their impact be, what would it look like. But I do think it is one of the mechanisms over which policy can, can make a difference. A big focus for education right now is reducing the gap between rich and poor. That gap is part of the wider discourse about inequality in society that has accompanied the global financial crisis, and it will be a focus of next month's International Teaching Summit, which New Zealand is hosting for the OECD and the global teacher union body Education International. A professor of public policy at Victoria University, Jonathan Boston, was co-chair of the Children's Commissioner's Expert Advisory Group on Poverty, which delivered its report in 2012. He says education can do a lot to mitigate the effects of poverty, but there are limits to what it can achieve. The evidence I have seen would suggest to me that education does matter, but it's only one of the things that matters, that despite an enormous amount of effort, there is still, in countries which have invested heavily in education and other efforts to address inequalities between uh, different groups, there, there is still very significant differences in the educational performance of children from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So even in countries such as those in Scandinavia, which have among the least income inequality of OECD countries, in which invest very heavily in education, including initiatives to assist disadvantaged students, there is still a very significant social gradient and the educational performance of children from lower socioeconomic backgrounds is, is inferior to those from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. So that suggests to me that you know, there are other you know, significant forces at work and that we should never expect 
the impossible from the providers of educational services. The push to address social problems from schools has been going on for some time. Many schools now provide health and other services directly to their students. One such is Waiopehu College in Levin, where Barry Petherick is the principal. A couple of years ago we were able to open a medical centre on, on the school grounds. We have a full-time nurse, guidance counsellor, drugs counsellors. We have a doctor come in for half a day a week, physiotherapists. So there's all sorts of programs operating out of there, like drug cessation, smoking cessation, all, of, all those supports. And every, every student, every Year 9 student, undergoes a HEADS, um, a HEADS survey analysis. It gives the data about the health of the child and can also lead into connections within the, the child's family, but it's primarily about the individual child. Barry Petherick says it's a long way from what schools used to do. You know, when I started teaching, which uh, is a few years ago now, <laughs> uh, I didn't know a single social worker, a single police officer in youth aid. I didn't know anybody in WINS or Life to the Max or, or the local council. And now we work with those people, those links are strong. We work with them all the time. So schools aren't the islands they used to be. It's uh, much more integrated into the whole community progressing nicely, if you like, to put it that way. Yeah, and you're able to cope with those various demands and, being, and having to you know, work with those agencies? Well... Is it reasonable to expect you to do this? <laughs> I, th I think it is reasonable. You, you could say, no, we shouldn't be involved in this. Uh, or you can take the other approach and say, actually, our society needs those that, that can help to help, and schools are in that front line. We can help, so we should. However it's achieved, either through alleviating poverty or through better teaching, there seems to be little doubt that children who achieve well at school are set up to achieve well in life. Jonathan Boston says education can provide a significant step up for children from poor families. Education is uh, pivotal in terms of building human capital, in terms of uh, helping to uh, reduce the consequences of disadvantage and provide the platform for people to succeed in life. It's extremely helpful in terms of enhancing social mobility, but uh, there are other absolutely crucial policy levers that are essential to use if you really want to reduce child poverty significantly and quickly. Massey University's John O'Neill says poverty puts a lot of barriers in the way of children's educational success. But he says for those who do well, education can be a great leveller. If you manage to overcome the statistical likelihood of educational failure and children succeed against the odds, then they're likely to have as many positive life opportunities as those children who already succeed. However, John O'Neill is wary of policies that simply set increased educational achievement as a target. He says the government's aim of 85% of 18-year-olds having at least Level 2 of the NCEA by 2017 is ill-conceived. There is one table, as far as I, I can find out, in one OECD publication that says the strongest link between education and economic and social well-being is the achievement of NCA2. If you get NCA2 or its equivalent, you're more likely to have a happier life. If you don't, you're more likely to have a, a marginalised life and a, a relatively uh, unproductive one. 
Now that's all very well as a starting point for discussions about what sort of education policies you should put in place. In my view, it's completely inappropriate to base your whole education system on that. Professor O'Neill says education is too complex for simplistic goals, and besides, there's a limit to what it can achieve. We have a large body of research evidence that says by far the most significant contribution to children's educational achievement is stuff that takes place outside the classroom. It's only when you discount that that the quality of teaching and to a much smaller extent the quality of school leadership comes into play. Other education researchers agree. They say between 70 and 80% of a child's educational achievement lies with factors outside the education system. That includes family income, but also things like parental attitudes towards and support for education, children's natural ability and parents' education qualifications. Despite the limitations and caveats, education can and does have a strong effect on individuals. But what about society at large? <laughs> at Waiapehu College, I asked Barry Petherick how much impact his school has on its community. We've always had in this school uh, a strata of um, very able students who have always gone off to university. What we're noticing looking at our lever data is we're also now getting a lot of the other students into good employment and apprenticeships, uh, not necessarily in, in this town but elsewhere in New Zealand as well. So, so they are leaving with futures ahead of them rather than no idea at all, I'm just finishing school but I don't know what I'll do. Okay, and so that's in part at least, you think, down to what you're doing here? Well, it's, it's hard to sort of put all the bits of the jigsaw together and say this is the key one that's making the difference, but it, it's all part of that wraparound of, of support for the kids, get them to school, keep them in class, all those sorts of things. Up the road at Shannon Primary School, there are plaques on the wall testifying that it's a health-promoting school. Clearly it does more than just teach the three R's. But the school's principal, Murray Powell, is unsure about the wider societal effects of his school's work. He says they're likely to be long-term rather than short-term. It's hard to know how much it affects you know, the parents and their changing of their food habits or eating habits, for instance. We have breakfast in schools, we actually have it in, in the town hall just over the road. And, you know, two mums run that and they've run it for, for a number of years and it's just absolutely amazing. Um, so we don't really enter into the debate about changing people in that way, um, but we want our kids to be able to be receptive to learning and feel positive about school. And certainly I think because of that, you know, the behaviours improve, the learning's improved. Um, so hopefully by that occurring... Um, and the children learning about sustainability and that at school that, that will sort of filter through and certainly I think when they are older or as they are growing up they are aware of those you know, those needs for, for families and may change some of the habits that are out there. A tall stick, short stick, a tall stick, short stick, Kitten, see how clever you can be. At Kandala School in Wellington, the principal, Louise Green, says the children come from relatively well-off backgrounds, so there's no need for the sort of poverty alleviation programs that run at other schools. The school's garden, for example, provides vegetables not for the children and their families, but for a local soup kitchen. 
And Louise Green says all schools can have a direct impact on their community, regardless of their background. Schools touch their communities in so many ways. Everybody is connected to a child, either as a parent or a, an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent, um, a neighbour. So there are lots of ways that um, schools can um, positively influence what's going on by the messages around what we're learning, the outreach that we're doing within our communities and the messages that we take home, the messages that we give when we gather with our community. Um, you know, it's equally important to hear what our community wants of us and for us to share with our community what we're trying to achieve and that in its own way influences. But Louise Green says it's very difficult to measure the size of that impact. Kaupapa Māori schools and early childhood centres are founded on strong family and community connections. The Tumuaki of Te Kura Kaupapa Māori of Whakawatia in Hamilton, Suzanne simmons Copper, says that means they can have a huge and visible influence on their community. What's been so, I think, gratifying here is seeing how many parents, as a result of even the kōhanga when we started that way back in the day, or the women that went on to do other things that weren't doing that before, you know, so some became midwives, lawyers, you know, all those kinds of things. And that's been stunning. But I think that we're moving into a whole new area now. We've reached a point where we think we've got to pay more attention to good characteristics and virtues and um, less attention to learning about volcanoes, for instance. More about how to research if you wanted to learn about volcanoes, how to do that well. But what's really fundamental to a great country are the people in it. So it's how we raise our children. And I really subscribe to that. It takes a village to raise a child, and I think that we do that here. But academics who study education say the impact of education on society is a difficult thing to measure. Massey University's Howard Lee says researchers have been talking about it for years. It's much debated in the literature, and it has been for certainly at least 40 to 50 years, and the evidence is a little bit um, varying depending on what you're looking at. In, in the New Zealand context, yes, there is some evidence to say that it can lead to change, but again, what we're really saying is how prepared are we to allow schools to do that, and how much freedom are we going to give schools to actually embrace that and to make some difference. There are a number of educational philosophers, for example, uh, people such as Paolo Freire, who were very, very passionate about the ability of schools to change society, uh, to change cultural practice, change political practices. Many remain sceptical. The Principals Federation's Philip Harding says education's impact on society is limited. Well, I remember in 1975 at university, Professor Snook saying uh, schools reflect society, they don't change society. And I've always believed that, and I think that the experience that I've had would, would tend to confirm it. John O'Neill agrees, citing a British expert. Anthony Giddens, a well-known professor of economics and sociology at the London School of Economics. He was the author of The Third Way, uh, philosophy and he said very explicitly you cannot expect education to solve all of society's problems. Societal problems have to be tackled at source. But others say there is clear evidence of education's impact on society. The chief executive of the Early Childhood Council, Peter Reynolds, says research clearly shows investing in good quality early childhood education pays off for everybody. The evidence is quite strong that children who participate in quality early childhood education get a really good start, it helps them with their later schooling, they're less likely to be reliant on state support, less likely to be truant or to fall foul of the justice system later in life, 
Um, so that, that will save money. I mean, the evidence in New Zealand suggests for every dollar invested in early childhood education, an $11 return over 20 years uh, can, can be mapped out. Cathy Wiley says there's also evidence that school education not only benefits the children receiving that education, but also their families and communities. More and more, what we're seeing is how students can have an influence through their learning right now in terms of what happens with their families and communities. And I'm thinking about some of the um, the health initiatives. Um, you know, when you had um, schools having a, a health promotion approach and you had kids going home and tackling their parents smoking, you had kids asking about the food that they were eating, you started to tackle some of those things right then and there. Kathy Wiley says that effect appears particularly strong when children feel their learning is connected to their community and that they actually have some influence. So many schools now have community gardens. There's some learning there that's going on in the school site. There are kids who are actually taking part in projects that give them a sense of agency and a sense that they belong to a wider good, but also influences what is going on in their homes. So it's, it's not that you, you'd say that this is the answer to everything, but it's actually got the potential to, to, do, to do an awful lot. And the Dean of Education at the University of Auckland, Professor Graham Aitken, says we can expect schools to deliver broader societal change because it's actually in the curriculum they teach. Its vision is for confident, connected, actively involved, uh, lifelong learners who contribute to the well-being of New Zealand. So in, in one sense, we're claiming that we can make a significant citizenship contribution and we have values in the curriculum such as enterprise and perseverance and resourcefulness and resiliency, all of things that we're claiming through our curriculum we can make a difference with. So I guess what I'm, I would argue is that we can make a difference to the lives of young people, which that in itself will make a difference to the lives of the communities in which they, they work and live. But it's difficult to measure education's wider impact on society and the things that are easy to measure are qualification pass rates and progress to employment. Graham Aitken says better academic results of themselves will not have a lot of impact on society. Simply getting achievement results is on the one hand wonderful because it opens doors to young people to study further. But the doors will be much wider open and their lives will be much more enriched if education adds to that an excitement, an enjoyment, a desire to want to keep learning and the confidence to do so. So we've got, you know, we've got a triple mission. We've got an achievement mission, we've got an interest mission and we've got a confidence mission and those things intersect with each other. Many of the educators I spoke to are worried about how much is being expected of the education system. Howard Lee from Massey University says people need to be realistic. We're asking so much of teachers in what is, let's face it, a rather limited uh, time period. Teachers have got students for about six hours a day, five days a week. That's about 30 hours out of a, a week of some 168 hours. That's not a lot of time. But of course around that we've also got the kind of education that hopefully happens in families um, in non-formal ways. So we can't just rely on teachers to do the work of education. They are obviously right there at the forefront of it. They're trained professional people. But alongside that we've also got the resource that parents need and can often bring to education. There is a strong sense that schools and early childhood education already contribute a lot to society and that they can do more. But a lot will hinge on exactly what's expected, how it is measured and what help and support there is for teachers. 
I'm John Gerritsen, and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Chris Keogh.